These are the words of King David. I will praise the Lord at all times. I will constantly speak his praises. I will boast only in the Lord. Let all who are helpless take heart. Come, let us tell, the Lord's, tell of the Lord's greatness. Let us exalt his name together. I prayed to the Lord and he answered me. He freed me from all of my fears. Those who look to him for help will be radiant with joy. No shadow or shame will darken their faces. In my despair, I prayed, and the Lord listened. He saved me from all of my troubles. For the angel of the Lord is a guard. He surrounds and defends all who fear him. When I was reading this this morning in my time of devotions, I really was inspired by these words because King David is talking about praying to God not only when things are going well, but praising God when things are not going well. It's often easy to say thank you God and praise God when everything is going really well in our lives, but when things don't go the way we expect or when things kind of go off kilter in our lives, it's often more challenging to say thank you God and to praise God in those moments. But what David says is he says, I prayed to the Lord and he answered me and he freed me from all of my fears and that he would help him become radiant with joy and that no shadow of shame would darken his face. He said he prayed in his time of desperation and that the Lord listened and saved him from his times of trouble. Friends, we gather today to worship a God who meets us where we are, no matter what has happened, no matter where we have come from, no matter what has happened this last week, the last weeks, no matter what we're facing in the weeks to come, and like David, we too are in a place where we can say, praise God for not only all that God has done, but for all God will do no matter where we've been because God goes with us. And that is one of the reasons why we are here. And I, for one, am grateful. I invite you to stand this morning as we begin our worship and song. Let's stand and lift our, lift our voices in praise. Today we're going to start a new teaching series um, titled Paradise Lost, Paradise Restored. And we're going to close up the Lenten series, these last two weeks of Lent with this series, and then roll on into Easter, as well as going into the, the two weeks of our stewardship emphasis, and this series will culminate with our, our Consecration Sunday. Um, and this series focuses on this image, this biblical image of, of gardens, and, and not so much gardens as in flower gardens and vegetable gardens, but more, more about the, the garden of life. And, and we're going to start today by going back to Genesis and look at the Garden of Eden. But as we f progress through this series, we're gonna, in the following weeks, we're going to track this, this metaphor, and it's going to take a little bit different shape, and it's going to flow in a little bit different way. And, and it's, it's actually going to be a really cool series as we follow it through the next five weeks. And so... I would encourage you and I hope that you would stick through this series and, and invite someone along with you on this journey through this Easter season. And hopefully you'll be, you are already praying for someone that you can invite to Easter and Palm Sunday services uh, to engage in this story of hope um, and why we're here in this place and who we worship. Let's take a moment to be in prayer together. Holy God, we are so grateful for the opportunity to worship to set aside the baggage of this week, to set aside the worries and the troubles of today and just to focus on you. Holy God, we invite you into this place, into this space. Use the songs, use the words, the scriptures, use the silence, Lord. Invade our hearts. 
let us encounter you here. It's in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus the Christ, that we pray. And the people of God said, amen. Amen. Well, throughout history, gardens have been uh, a symbol of wealth and luxury, luxury, which, which is why I keep a garden. Oh, I'm just kidding, that's not why. Um, but, but in all reality, that's, it, in history and in antiquity, um, having a garden was a measure of wealth and, and a measure of luxury. And if you picture it in your mind, think of your stereotypical mansion you know, of antiquity, what's alongside it? A beautiful garden, you know, big trees and this picturesque thing. And, you know, we actually today, even we still kind of, some of us still feed our need for this uh, fascination with these luscious trees and exotic flowers and by playing like, you know, gardenscapes. Anybody want to admit it? No, it's okay. You don't have to. No judgments on that. Um, Or other iOS uh, time wasters where you get to design your own gardens. It's okay. I still love you. But even in the... Even in the Middle East, um, during uh, Jesus' time, there were gardens in the king's garden, but you had to be excessively wealthy in order to keep a garden, like a king. And the reason was is because of water. And in order to have a garden, you had to have an aqueduct system in order to water your garden, just get it to live through the dry season. In order to survive the dry season, you had to bring in the water, and the only people who could do that were the most wealthy people, which were the kings. And so the kings had these immaculate gardens, the king's gardens. And one of the greatest honors in the first century during Jesus' life was to be invited to walk in the king's garden. It was one of the greatest honors. There's something amazing about it. The king's garden was the, the ultimate picture of paradise in the ancient world. And to be invited into it was to be invited into proverbial paradise. And today our story of paradise lost begins at the creation of all things. And the creation of all things begins with the king of the universe who began by creating a garden. And it all began in the beginning. So we're going to start this morning in Genesis 1.1. You'll find it on page 1 of your Bibles. That If you brought your Bible, I encourage you to open it up or on your phone to, to go ahead and go to Genesis 1.1. If not, it'll be on the screen this morning. Um, but I'm going to read from Genesis chapter 1. Um, I invite you to follow along. It goes like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. And then in verse 11, then God said, let the land sprout with vegetation, all sorts of seed-bearing plants and trees that grow seed-bearing fruit. These seeds will then produce the kinds of plants and trees from which they came, and that is what happened. The land produced vegetation, all sorts of seed-bearing plants and trees with seed-bearing fruit. Their seeds produced plants and trees of the same kind. 
And God saw that it was good. And then in verse 24, then God said, let the earth produce every sort of animal, each producing offspring of the same kind, livestock, small animals that scurry along the ground, and wild animals. And that is what happened. God made all sorts of wild animals, livestock and small animals, each able to produce offspring of the same kind, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. As beautiful as a picturesque gardenscape, the poetic words of Genesis, they paint this picture of God's creation and all that exists. Light, and there it is, light. Land, water, plants, animals, a beautiful garden. And then God created humankind in his image, in his own image, in the image of God, he created them. And together they tended the garden. And this is, this is where life began. And we call it Eden, the Garden of Eden. And it was in the time before sin entered the world. And God walked with humankind in the garden. Now, physically speaking, physically speaking, the garden was this place of beauty where the created world was, that the created beauty that God made, right? The created world, the beauty of it. Spiritually speaking, spiritually speaking, paradise was this place of existence where there was nothing between God and humankind. So we have the physical paradise Physical paradise, beauty of creation. We have spiritual paradise, nothing between God and humankind because God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve until that day that they listened to this voice that told them to seek out their own way, to follow their own instead of their own will instead of God's. And it's not like they went out of their way. It's not like they said, not your will, God, but my will be done. It's not like they did that, but it's, it's that they wanted their own desires to be fulfilled. They wanted to do it their own way. And, and I, really, I really like the language that's used in, in Genesis 3, 6, um, when, when we get to that whole fruit, the forbidden fruit thing. And, and it, it says this in 3, 6, the woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious. And then hear this. And she wanted the wisdom it would give her. She wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it, and she gave it to her husband who was with her, so, and he was there too, and he ate it too. Adam and Eve both had this desire to live out their own will instead of following God's will, but by doing so, by, by failing to be faithful to what God had asked of them, they turned away from God, and paradise was lost. Now, I'm not just talking about physically, physically lost, like, you know, get out of the garden. We, we know that. I'm talking about what was spiritually lost. All for the sake of wanting their own will over God's. Now, sometimes we get, we get caught up in the details, 
We get, we get trapped in the, the lineage and the ancestry, and, and in our arguments, we miss the fact that, that this is our story too. This is our story too. And we don't like intentionally say, not your will, God, but mine be done. We don't pray that, but we live it out in our lives. We live it out in the choices that we make and, and how we live. You see, we have every good intention of being faithful to, to work out God's will as we build the kingdom here on earth. However, we often, we often fail and we fall into the same trap that Adam and Eve did. Instead of remaining faithful to God's will and his purpose, we put our own desires and our own will and our own interests before God's. We start making decisions on our own. We, we start doing things without God. And then we fail just as, as they did. And the fact is, is that we can't recreate paradise. You see, because we can't individually fix what we as a people broke when paradise was lost. But there is someone who can. You see, the, the work of res restoration, of restoring the brokenness of our world happened in a garden many years later, a different garden. You see, Jesus suffered and died and rose again into eternal life in another garden, a garden called Gethsemane. And it was this action that started the restoration process for the world that offers us, that offers us forgiveness and, it, and offers us a restored relationship with God. And what I'm speaking here of is, is, is actually a very profound theological concept and it, and it stretches all the way back to the Garden of Eden. You see, before paradise was lost in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve walked with God, with nothing between them. And the restored relationship that Jesus brings returns us into that fellowship where we can once again walk with God, with nothing between us. And this is the work that Christ began the night that he was betrayed and arrested. And so we're going to pick up that story in Matthew chapter 26. So Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 20, or 36, says this. Then Jesus went with them to the olive grove called Gethsemane, and he said, sit here while I go over there to pray. He took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, and he became anguished and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. And he went on a little farther and bowed with his face to the ground, praying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Then he returned to the disciples and found them asleep. He said to Peter, Couldn't you watch with me even one hour? Keep watch and pray, so that you do not give in to temptation, for the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Then Jesus left them a second time and prayed, My Father, if this cup cannot be taken away unless I drink it, your will be done. When he returned to them again, he found them sleeping, for they couldn't keep their eyes open. So he went to pray a third time, saying the same things again. Then he came to the disciples and said, Go ahead and sleep. Have your rest. But look. 
The time has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hand of sinners. Up. Let's be going. Look, my betrayer is here. Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the picture we should have in our minds is not that of a, that of a vegetable garden or, or a flower garden, but is, but is that of an, a grove of trees, an orchard, an, an olive grove. Gethsemane literally means oil press. And if you were to travel across the Kidron Valley from Jerusalem today, you would find a grove of 900-year-old olive trees. And interestingly enough, these trees that are 900 years old have been tested and are all from the same parent tree, which means that someone went through a lot of trouble to ensure that this, this line of trees grew in this specific spot. Most believe that this is the original location of the Garden of Gethsemane. So let's look at this work of Christ in the garden. The week leading up to this, we call Holy Week. And it started with the Passover meal, and Jesus knew what was coming. He knew what lay before him. He knew that one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, was gonna betray him. He knew that he would be put on trial. He knew that he would be put um, on a cross. And so he took his disciples to a place that they often went to pray. Across the Kidron Valley, to the Garden of Gethsemane. When they arrived, he, he went farther with a couple of his chosen disciples, and he probably went by a, an oil press because they would have had an, an olive press in the, in the midst of the trees to, so they didn't have to travel so far with the olives. And he falls down on the dirt with his face in the ground. He's in anguish. And it never ceases to amaze me how, how, how limited our English language is because he says he's, he's in anguish and he's distressed. That's how Matthew says it. And, and the words could also be translated as, as, as tormented or, or agitated. In the Gospel of Mark, it says he became deeply troubled. And in Luke's account, he says that Jesus manifested physical symptoms in his agony. He says Jesus was in such agony of spirit that his sweat fell to the ground like great drops of blood. Jesus was in great distress. And so we see Jesus on the ground praying in distress and we are faced with these questions. One, why is Jesus in so much pain? And two, what in the world is this cup that God is asking him to drink from? Now, the beauty of this scene, if, if there is ever beauty in pain, is that it truly paints a picture of the humanness of Jesus as he deals with stress and deals with the realities of real life, and that's something that we can truly connect with in our lives. But was Jesus' distress a response of self-preservation? Is, is he responding just because he's, he knows he's going to die? Because going that route seems logical for us. You know, that, that makes a lot of sense. If we had to choose between death on a cross or, or not, walking away, self-preservation is a pretty good motivator. Because Jesus could have walked away. A little bit farther from the Garden of Gethsemane is, uh, is Bethpage or, or Bethany, and he had friends there. He could have gone over there and, and met with his friends and then escaped into the wilderness. 
But we're also talking about the Son of God. He could have just looked out of the Garden of Gethsemane toward Jerusalem and seen the Golden Gate, which is the front entrance of Jerusalem, and he could have seen it being the rabbi that he was. He would have read the Old Testament and known that the the prophets and, and the Old Testament prophesied that the Messiah would enter the Golden Gate, and he could have marched into Jerusalem as the authority of God's Son. He could have done that too. He didn't have to go to Jerusalem in chains. He had other options. But fleeing the area, living to, to fight another day and, and abusing the power that God had given him would both have meant following the footsteps of Adam and Eve and choosing his own will over God's will. See, Jesus chose instead to follow God's will, knowing full well that it meant dying on the cross. See, making this choice is what brought Jesus into this great anguish. But not for the reason that we might think. It has more to do with this bitter cup that Jesus was to drink. And that bitter cup was not the pain of his death. It was a spiritual cup that caused Jesus' anguish. That distress came from drinking of the cup of God's wrath. You see, that spiritual cup, the cup of God's wrath, is is a way of talking about God's divine judgment on sin. Now, we may not like to talk about God's judgment on sin in our culture today and and, in in our intermingling with other people today, But Scripture is quite clear on this. Job 21.20 says, Let them see their destruction with their own eyes. Let them drink deeply of the anger of the Almighty. Psalm 75.8, we find, For the Lord holds a cup in his hand that is full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours out the wine in judgment, and all the wicked must drink it, draining it to the dregs. You see, God was not asking Jesus to die a martyr's death for a moral cause. This had nothing to do with moralism. God was asking Jesus to take upon himself the sin of the world, and with it, God's judgment for that sin. And while it's easy for us to say Jesus carried the the sin of the world on the cross, we often fail to realize the spiritual toll that would have placed on Jesus on his relationship with his heavenly father. You see, the human side of Jesus was wrestling with the divine side of what was being asked of him. And in the Garden of Eden, sin, if we go back to the Garden of Eden, sin had separated Adam and Eve from God. Sin had lost us paradise. And for Jesus to take on the sin of the world, his relationship with his heavenly father would be alienated. And he would become spiritually separated, although momentarily spiritually separated from God by the sin of humankind. And the mere thought of this wrecked Jesus emotionally. In his book, Basic Christianity, John Stott describes that moment of separation like this, and I quote, Jesus was bearing our sins And God, who is of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wrong, turned his face away. Our sins came between the Father and the Son. 
the Lord Jesus, who was eternally with the Father, who enjoyed unbroken communion with him throughout his life on earth, was thus momentarily abandoned. He tasted the torment of a soul estranged from God, end quote. The spiritual paradise that is lost. But when Jesus chose to put God's will before his own, to say, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus began to undo and restore what was lost in the Garden of Eden. You see, redemption was on the way and reconciliation was coming and a new relationship with God was on the horizon. Jesus' choice opened the door for us to live again, once again, in the king's kingdom, or the king's garden, and not as some future opportunity, like after we die, we get to go live in the garden, but as a present reality, something we experience right now in our day-to-day lives. You see, Jesus set the stage in his prayer for us to be able to pray the same prayer. And every time that we do, every time we follow Jesus' example and we put God's will in front of our own, A part of paradise is restored, and we actually can glimpse a little piece of the promised land, a little piece of the kingdom right now. But it takes a choice on our part. Every day, every day we must choose. We must seek our own. We must seek and decide, are we going to choose our own will or are we going to choose God's will? In all aspects of our life, all aspects, not just on Sunday, in our relationships, whether, whether they're intimate, distant, or, or strained, and in our finances, whether we live in abundance or in scarcity or somewhere in between, in our work, whether we're overemployed, underemployed, or rightly employed, and how we entertain ourselves on Netflix, on Hulu, and on YouTube, and what we share, what we post, what we retweet. In every choice we make, We have to choose, are we gonna choose our will or are we gonna choose God's will? Are we gonna say, not your will, but my will be done, or not my will, but your will be done? And the choice is ours to make each and every day. But I know what you're thinking, The the challenge still remains. The challenge still remains because If we're going to choose God's will, how can we be sure that it truly is, in fact, God's will, right? I mean, Jesus had an advantage. He was the Son of God, and we're not. (laughs) He had some clarity. How do you know? How can you be confident that what you're choosing is, in fact, the right choice and is God's will? Well, here's, here's a few things you can do to help your discernment process. First is to engage with God through his word. The Bible offers us a wealth of direction and a wealth of insight. It teaches us how God calls us to care for each other. And the truth of the matter is is that we cannot honestly pray, not my will but yours be done, if we neglect our engagement with God's word. The second thing is is we can also find guidance as we gather together and worship The Holy Spirit moves in the worship experience through words, through scriptures, through songs, and through the silence. And as we focus our hearts and our minds in the experience, and we focus them on Christ, we can find clarity through that movement of the Spirit. 
still. It is, there's a hard truth that we must face when we deal with choosing God's will. And that is the reality that is not always comfortable and God's will is not always convenient. You know, following God's will for Jesus meant discomfort, it meant pain, it meant rejection, it meant abandonment. Spiritually speaking, it meant facing darkness and momentary isolation from God. God's will is often uncomfortable, it's often inconvenient, and honestly, it sometimes it's darn right painful. And when faced with this, it seems impossible sometimes to say, not my will, but yours be done, and then actually follow through with it. But, let me assure you, we can, if we choose to. If we choose to, but it has to be a choice. We can choose to, and we can find victory like Christ did. And we can walk courageously in our faith because of what Jesus did in the garden. You see, we don't have to follow Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden. We don't have to choose their path because Jesus made a choice in the Garden of Gethsemane that paved a new road for us. And because of his choice to follow God's will, the process of redemption began. And there was, there's still more to, there was still more to do, still more to be done to see the full restoration of the world, to see the full restoration of the king's garden. But the road to redemption began with Jesus' choice. I, and I hope and pray that his choice to put God's will before his own will inspire each of us today so that we can all do the same. And that as we put God's will before our own, that we too would experience the fullness, the fullness of life that God intends. As we would once more walk in God's garden, and that is the king's garden. Let's pray. Holy God, you have created such beauty in this garden that we call home. Yet in our desire to see our will fulfilled, we sometimes fail to live into the life you have called us. Give us the courage we need to boldly kneel before your throne and pray as Jesus did, not our will, Lord, but your will be done on this earth as it is in heaven. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son and our Savior. Amen.